This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio, episode number 54. What has Coca-Cola, Walmart, and Patagonia done that has increased profits and success and set the stage for the future way beyond the vast majority of companies? How do they create compelling visions that shape a radically different future? And what can you do, no matter what your job title is, to develop a vibrant culture and inspired employees. Listen to this thought-provoking interview to find out. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio, and today we're talking with Diana Rivenberg. She's our special guest, and she has over 25 years' experience in organizational leadership development, change consulting, and creation strategy. She's held several corporate leadership positions, such as the VP of Organization Development for Gartner, AVP of Organizational Effectiveness for the Gentiva Health Services, and Director of Organizational Development and Planning for the Olsten Corporation. Her latest book is The New Corporate Facts of Life, Rethink Your Business to Transform Today's Challenges into Tomorrow's Profits. Welcome, Diana. Well, thank you, Sabrina. Good to be here. It's uh, great to have you here, and I've really in- enjoyed this book, and it's it's really got a lot of depth of information in, in it. I'm wondering what you did to um, get this information. How did how did you do the research? Well, I I spoke to probably around a hundred different leaders of corporations, large and small, all different sectors, different countries and also spoke to a number of, of leaders in outside of corporations, so in communities or working for not-for-profits or NGOs and in, in, in government positions at uh, presidents of universities, just to get their perspective on things that were important in their industries or in their organizations and where they saw the future going. Wow. And what, what are some of the global forces that are changing corporations? Well, the seven that I keyed in on on my book are disruptive innovation, economic instability, societal upheaval, stakeholder power, environmental degradation, globalization, and population shifts. So, I mean, this is pretty broad, and we won't have time to cover all that today, but I was especially interested in you're talking about a mindset, and is this a mindset for the people in the company? What What is a mindset, and why is it important that we begin to change it? Well, uh, when the first chapter of the book talks about these seven forces and gives some examples of the, the challenges and opportunities for each, but most of the book is around, well, what do we do about it? And so the very next chapter I thought I had to put in there was about mindsets. Because until you change the mindset, you don't change anything. 
you really only will get some incremental change. You will not get any kind of transformational change until people start to look at things differently. So, so we know mindsets from like different terms, like mental models or our paradigms or our perspectives. So when you when you say mindset, are you saying that uh, the people that are running the companies need to understand that these changes are happening? Is yes, that they, part of what you mean? Yes. So part of it is the awareness that of the forces that are in play and how each of these impacts your business and and your industry. And then also looking at the possibilities very differently because we're kind of in this industrial age model that's been turbocharged by technology. Mm-hmm. But we're still doing things the kind of industrial way. You know, we mine things from the ground, we make stuff, we... We use it up, and then we toss it into a landfill somewhere. I mean, it's still kind of like that take-make-waste mentality. But yet all of these forces are converging together to give us the innovation we need to change that business model, to change the way we make and use products, and, and to really shift into a business model where we create shared value. So create shared value for whom? For the company and for society. Mm-hmm. So this is something that we like. We have people like Michael Porter uh, talking about a great deal. So this, create, this whole concept of creating shared value is when you take a look at ways that you can be operate in ways that are more environmentally and socially responsible. But by doing so, it makes you drive innovation and not only serve the needs of society, but bring more money to your bottom line. So who's Michael Porter, uh, Diana? Michael Porter has, has been long known as an expert in the strategy space. So he's written a number of books on strategy, writes a great deal for Harvard Business Review and, and other publications. And in recent years, he's been uh, writing about this concept of creating shared value. Mm-hmm. And now it's called CSV because we have to have an acronym to go along with it. <laughs> right. So of uh, the companies that you interviewed, which one can you tell us about one that stands out that has begun to do this? Okay. Um, yeah, there were so many of them. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's one that is an aluminum company. The name of the company is Novellus, mm-hmm. and they are the world's largest provider of sheet of rolled aluminum, like sheet aluminum that we would that would be used for things like beverage cans or automobiles or uh, components for electronics or for building materials. Well, at Novellus, they have a goal to have 80% of their aluminum come from recycled sources. Aluminum is infinitely recyclable because it doesn't lose its quality each time it gets recycled, unlike things like paper. Mm -hmm. So not only can can it be reused without losing quality, it uses about 5% of the energy and greenhouse gas emissions of mining ore from the earth and turning it into aluminum. So it's very energy efficient, it's cheaper to do, and it's and it's uh, uh, of the same level of quality. So it's good for society, it's, it's good for the, the company. So things like this have been driving not just the product part of Novellus, but also how they look at their entire business. So they want to double their business while they move towards having 80% of their product come from recycled content. But they also want to do things like promote 
uh, education around the STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, mm-hmm. because they know that through that is where they will get their engineers and technologists of the future. And they also want to drive towards things like zero accidents in the workplace. You know, they're a plant environment, and they operate in 11 countries. So it's it's important for them that they keep a, a very safe workplace. So all these things are good for society, but also good for the company. Wow. That's that's a great story. Yeah, and, and I mean, they're doing hundreds of things around this. Those are just a few examples. Right. But it really has changed the way they look at their business and the way they view the future. And they look at all these forces that I mentioned earlier, and you know they see a very different future in the year 2020 or 2025, and they know they need to be prepared for that. And uh, in the book you mentioned the Coca-Cola company. Can you tell us how they're doing that? Well, uh, Coca-Cola has, uh, as with many large companies, has often been a target of um, some of the advocacy groups like a Greenpeace or the WWF who make a, you know, go after the large companies to use resources better. Mm-hmm. So when you think about Coca-Cola, a, a huge resource for them is water. So uh, they are making great strides to look at the amount of water they use in making their, their beverage products and reducing that dramatically. Ideally, they'd like to get to a one-to-one ratio. And where that's not possible, then supplement by um, increasing water supplies through some of their social activities. But they look at areas around water, wellness, and women would be three key areas of environmental and social responsibility. So we talked about water, the second on, on wellness or well-being. When you think about a beverage company and how much they are attacked because of things like childhood obesity or obesity in general and health of, of people who are consuming sugar products, then they become a big target for that, even though they've been around for 100 years and we weren't as overweight 100 years ago as, as we are now. Mm-hmm. So they know they have to get engaged around the whole wellness conversation and really take a look at their mix of products, what is put into their products, how they engage with people in the communities to help encourage active living, and how they how they deal with schools, for example. And then the third piece around women is they have an initiative to economically empower, I think it's 5 million women by the year 2020, by helping them to be set up in businesses or expand their businesses around the world. Wow, it's exciting. So the the new corporation, social responsibility and sustainability, it's really a big part of how they're running their business. Yes, it, it is. It's becoming more and more prevalent, and the companies that really get it are have fully in, integrated this into their strategies, and they're trying to get it into their culture, into every part of their operations. And that's not an easy thing to do, particularly when you're a large company. So there are areas where they'll be more successful than others. And it, you know, takes, and the leaders, the people that are being recognized out there as leaders, are the first ones to say that, you know what, we're just scratching the surface. So We, just, we don't know what we don't know, and, and we're still discovering. What's, what's bringing about this mind change? How is, is this uh, helping them to have more profits and to get more business with their companies? How does this connect up? 
Yes, I, I think in the in the early days it was doing things to be compliant or because it would be bad for your brand image if you didn't. So early on in the book, I, I use the example of of Nike, which you know back in the late 1990s they were under attack for some of the terrible uh, labor practices that were in their supply chain. Mm-hmm. Now these factories weren't owned by Nike, but they were supplying to Nike. And you know, back in the day, uh, the the standard response would be, well, you know, we try and do our best, but we don't own them. They're not our company. They're not our employees. And that just wasn't going to fly. So when consumers started, you know, burning Nike shoes in the street and their earnings dropped by nearly 70%, you know, they had to pay attention to that. So initially, sometimes you're held up as a as a target. And there's a demand to do something differently, mm-hmm. and so people start to do have better practices, more socially and environmentally responsible practices. But what's happened over the years is as they as they start to look at these things, a company like Nike is now being incredibly innovative. In fact, their head of sustainability reports to their head of innovation. Wow! So they are collaborating with their competitors to completely rethink how garments are sourced and made, what materials they're made out of, the environmental practices, the social practices in the supply chain, because they know that that there's not one company out there that can do that alone. They need to completely transform an industry. Wow, that's that's really incredible. What percentage of corporations are actually understand this new the new facts and are implementing them? I would say that the the large companies all understand these to to some degree and and have them integrated to some extent into their strategies and into their operations. None of them are perfect. None of the companies mentioned in this book are perfect. I've yet to come across the perfect company. But what's really interesting is that the more they focus on these areas and the more they look at the possibilities, they become more and more strategic. So when companies are starting out, they're they're like compliant. You know, they're trying to do the right thing and be compliant and stay out of the trouble and stay out of the headlines. And then they start to find opportunities where they can save money or make money and, and be more efficient. So, for example, a company like UPS, who's mentioned in the, in the book, uh, mm-hmm. would look at areas around sustainability initially as this is just good common sense business practices. You know, they weren't looking at the S word, but when you, you think about it, they you know they have trucks and planes all over the world. So anything they can do to save fuel, save energy, that's saving money. Save packaging, same thing. So you know, it was just good common business sense. And now it's getting to the point where it's starting to be a strategic driver, so where it's driving innovation, where it's driving changes in the business model. And more and more conversations are, are just starting to get beyond this whole notion of the sustainable business model into a business that really thrives. Wow. Into a business that's really kind of more exciting to you know to be in, and, and one that's more innovative. So, for the women that are listening to this program, who are in positions of leadership in different companies, how do they begin to reshape the strategies, the culture, the visions in their companies to get in, into alignment with this? Well, I would say that uh, first it. I, one of the reasons that I, I framed the book the way it is is to encourage people at every level to leave from wherever they stand. So we, we still have a challenge. We, we're having many more women get into senior ranks, which is great, but we still have the challenge where there aren't enough. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I never want to see that be used as a, as a reason not to do the right thing or not to try something differently. Mm-hmm. We all have uh, some means of influencing based upon where we stand. And it might be just the things that we can do in our own department or our own division or the, own, or the business unit that we run or the not-for-profit profit group that we run. But there are ways that we can, can have influence by first, as I said, shift the mindsets. Start bringing in examples of companies that are doing things differently. And you can also take a look at some of these seven forces and and really take a, a good, solid look at how they're impacting your organization. Where do they present challenges and risks? Where do they pre- present some opportunities? Where can you do a better job in these areas? Which of them are kind of coming to the surface as being more important? And I also think uh, collaborating with others in, inside the organization, finding other like-minded people, because very often in some of these companies, the the surge comes from within. There are people within the organization, perhaps in the middle management ranks, who are bringing up things to the CEO, and saying, "Okay, when, you know, why can't we do this? Look at what look at what's happening in our competitors. Look at what's happening in these other industries. Why can't we do more in this area?" And so often they're the ones that bring up the issues that the CEO suddenly says, okay, well, maybe we need to start looking at that. That's uh, Those are really good ideas, and I really really like what you're saying about no matter where you are, lead lead from that position. I think that's such an important thing to remember. Um, when, go ahead. Oh, in the, in the end of the book, one of the things that I was looking at when informing the conclusion was, well, you know, what are the kind of like the lessons learned Mm-hmm. from the work that I went through. And that kind of puts me in mind of the, the question that, that you just asked. And and I put down four lessons, and one was that you can meet the people you need to meet. So it was amazing to me how I could network around the globe. If I was going to another country on business, I could find someone in that country that I could interview, or I could find a resource that was a subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. The second ne- uh, lesson is that you can learn what you need to know. You can learn whatever it is that you need to know, or you can find that expert that can come in and pro- and provide that knowledge. And the third was you can turn every problem into an opportunity. Don't just look at them as a problem, but just how, how do I flip that around? If I solve this, well, that becomes an opportunity. And then the fourth is you can lead from where you stand. I mean, we've seen that throughout history, and we just and we just lost Nelson Mandela. I mean, we saw what he was able to do from where he was. Certainly not from a position of, of power. Yeah, it was a beautiful example, such an inspirational man. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about three keys to cultural transformation. Can you say what those are and how people can start applying them? Yes, yes. A culture is such so important to a business. You can't execute a, a new strategy with an old culture. You really have to align the two. And the, the three keys to culture transformation that, that uh, we use quite a bit are um, lead, engage, and align. So when you know you take a first, you have to take a good look at your leaders. Are they competent? Are they ethical? Do they have the capabilities you need to to take them forward? And and there is a chapter in the book where I talk about leadership competencies needed for this this new era. Could you and, could you give us a, a couple of examples of those? Oh sure yeah. sure. One thing um, would be that you need to build relationships across boundaries like you never have before. So throughout the organization at all levels and 
happen outside of your organization. So with the community, with government, with these NGOs and these activists that might have been you know, picketing your door at one point, they might have been adversaries. Now you have to figure out how to turn them into uh, collaborators, into people that can help you solve problems. You may also be collaborating with your um, with your competitors, as I mentioned earlier, with the apparel industry. So a lot of that's going on. So be able to build those relationships across boundaries. Mm-hmm. The, another is to have um, a really opportunistic vision, where you're not you know you're not dreaming pie in the sky, but you're really looking at these big, large goals that you really don't have any idea how you're going to get there, but that you know you have to find a way. Mm-hmm. And and you're willing to, you know, in the past, companies would only promise what they were 100% sure they could deliver. And now these these visionary leaders are going out there and saying, you know what, we're going to figure out how we're going to get to become this, let's say, highly sustainable company, how we're going to get to this zero waste, zero energies, you know, whatever uh, that we want to be. And uh, one of the leaders that I quote in the book is um, a man, Ray Anderson, who started a carpet company, Interface Carpet. And about nearly 20 years ago, he decided to, he wanted to turn this carpet company into an ecology leader. And his people thought he was nuts. They thought he'd lost it. So he said at one of his manager's meetings, he said, I, I understand some of you think I've, I've gone around the bend. And he said, you're right. That's, that's what leaders do. It's Beautiful. our job to see around the bend. So that's, that's the leadership piece. Can you give me another uh, example of somebody that, a company that has a big vision like that that's pretty audacious? Uh, let's see. I would say um, one of the companies that I, I came across in, in the research was um, the body shop. Mm-hmm. So you take a look at um, you know, what Anita Roddick had, had done in her vision, and she was just you know, looking to earn some money when she first started up the body shop, but she really founded it on very ethical practices. And I was impressed that you know, her website lists her as a human rights activist first and then as the founder of the company. Mm-hmm. So everything that the body shop does is guided by its core values. And there was, um, she said about her vision that she just wants the body shop to be the best, the most breathlessly exciting company and one that changes the way business is carried out. Beautiful. And you know, so she's been a, a huge proponent of addressing environmental issues and human and animal rights and in attacking poverty in the way she does. She operates her business or has operated her business. And I love those stories of those smaller companies that started up around this, this premise or transformed themselves around this premise and ended up transforming industries in, in their wake. So the body shop was sold to L'Oreal in 2006, and one of the reasons that it was so attractive to L'Oreal was because they wanted to learn how to do this. Like, how do we get to be more like this? Wow, interesting. So lead, engage, and align. So what about engage? What does that mean? Engage is getting your your employees to participate in early on and often. So in all types of daily practices, not just it's time for the employee engagement survey, but uh, really tapping into your people at all levels. I mean, the best ideas come from those closest to the work. And That's, you can't just ask them once in a while. I mean, they have to, it has to be part, I mean, become part of your culture. So when you're trying to transform the culture, 
you certainly want to tap into the people that work there to get ideas about what this culture should be. Where where is it now? What are the strengths of the culture now? Because we all have strengths in our cultures. And then what should it be? If you were running this place, what what do you think it, would, it should be? And and use that input to help shape where that the direction that that culture should go in. Do you have an and example of a company? I'm sorry. Do you have an okay. example of a company that that does that? Uh, yes, yes, I do. I can think of a couple. Um, well, all right. Today I had a meeting with the uh, president of, of a company called Dirt, which is spelled D-I-R-T-T, mm-hmm. which stands for Doing It Right This Time. And I met with uh, Scott Jenkins, who is the president, and a number of the people on um, his uh, business development team and the plant manager for Savannah and Phoenix Plant. And Dirt is is in the construction business. They They create... Uh, what's called agile interiors. So these are, you know, walls within commercial spaces that are movable, reusable, made of environmentally responsible materials and processes. They're very environmentally responsible in their in their plant environments, and they're very socially responsible company. And they they guard their culture as as much as they do anything else in the business. In fact, the CEO. We'll talk about the culture. Probably eighty to ninety percent of his communications will be about the culture, and he wants to hear from people within that organization. So one of the, one of the conversations that came up today was about it, um, there were four or five people standing around at the Savannah plant. You know, they'd stop what they were doing on the on the plant line and were just kind of talking, and you, and they could tell from a distance that from the animation in in their gestures that they were just trying to solve a problem. And the plant manager walked over, and sure enough, that's what they were trying to do. It was something that they just said, this has got to work better. And they were just tossing around some ideas about about how to improve that. And they said, that's just the kind of thing that goes on all the time around here. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah. And people <laughs> love working there. They call themselves dirt, dirt bags. They're, <laughs> they're not big on titles, so the CEO calls himself the head dirt bag. Their COO, Tracy Baker, is a, is a woman, and she was uh, originally hired as their CFO. And um, Mogan Smed, the, uh, the CEO, put her into this uh, chief operating officer role, and she said, well, I don't know anything really about manufacturing. I, you know, And he said, no, you'll, you'll figure it out. That's fine. He says, it's probably good that you don't know it because that means you haven't been ruined by what other manufacturers do. And she does a fabulous job. That's a great, great thing to hear. And what about the last one, the aligning? So we have lead, engage, and align. So mm-hmm. in the align, we're talking about really aligning all of your people practices and systems and processes. Because very often we have the best of intentions, but all of our practices and systems just get in the way of us doing the right thing. So you know, if you want people who are going to work collaboratively, then hire people that you think would work well as part of a team. If you, you know, or hire people that will be um, innovative and creative, or that will strive for excellence. So your hiring practices should align to that. Who you promote should align to that. Your incentive plans. I've seen more incentive plans just mess up, you know, a company's culture and and the company's strategic direction than than I can count on. Uh, their the training programs. You know, what are you training people around? What what does your organization model look like? Are there tons and tons of layers of management, or is it a flatter model? So whatever it is that you that you want to do, you need to take a look at how is your how is your system and your structure getting in the way or promoting that kind of culture. 
Wow. Beautiful. We're just about out of time, but I'm wondering, uh, do you have any thoughts on the skills that are needed to be on the boards of these thriving companies? Yes, I, I, I do. I um, All too often the, the boards seem to be made up of people who want to share their perspectives of how to run a business based upon how I've done it before. And, you know, I kind of think about Marshall Goldsmith's book, the, you know, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, mm-hmm. something to that effect, I think, in the title. And it's, and it's that kind of mentality. It's just, just because it worked before doesn't mean it's going to work in, as we go into this next era. So, first of all, I think you need to be ethical. I think you have to have courage. You have to be able to work collaboratively with your, the leaders of the company and with other board members. You need to have, I think, a uh, proven track record. So you need to, have, to, you need to have earned your way to get on the board, mm-hmm. certainly. And that, so that experience that you bring with you should help you inform what you can bring to the table, but not dictate it, because you're not going to have this company do exactly what made you successful in, in your company, for example. Great, uh, great advice. Is there any? We're just about done. I'm wondering, is there any? piece of advice you'd like to share with the the leaders that are listening to this uh, interview right now? You mean besides read my book? <laughs> yeah, read your book is a good one. <laughs> and uh, um, that's, a, I, having read it, and I've also given out several copies, I highly suggest read your book. Is there anything else, or is that, is that what you're yeah. with? <laughs> well, uh, certainly in writing it, I was really hoping to to be a bit provocative and get people to just think about different possibilities. It's you know we're so busy just kind of going through the day in day out demands and putting out the fires and chasing those quarterly profits and and there's just you know be able to just pick your head up and and take that time to just reflect on, is there a better way to do this? Is there a better way to operate this business? Are there other possibilities out there? Because the companies that are finding these new possibilities are not just creating greater benefits for the bottom line and for the top line, but they're also really engaging their people. Their people are much more excited about working for these companies. There's greater pride. There's greater brand image for for the business, greater innovation. So there, there are a lot of benefits here. But it's really, you know, I... I purposely did not brand this as a sustainability book because it's so much bigger than that concept. It's just, it's, it really is about a new way of thinking about business. Is there a better way to do this? What a what a great question to, to end this conversation on. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Sabrina. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. To get a free sample of my new program, The Winning Career Video Training, go to www.womensleadershipsuccess.com and sign up on the form that appears on the screen after a moment. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brom, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. 
for additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.